Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast features Simon Shields, co-founder of Monash Investors. Simon's aim is to use an absolute return strategy to generate double-digit returns from Australian equities over the market cycle. In our chat, Simon tells us how he and his team find compelling stocks to buy, the common causes of mispricings that investors can exploit, why catalysts are important, and so on. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Simon Shields from Monash Investors. Simon, thanks for taking some time out today to join me on the show. Not at all. I'm looking forward to it. One of the things that I love to do in an attempt to try and understand how your philosophy has been shaped around business and investing is to go back and learn a bit more about you and your your story. So I don't think I've heard or seen you present on this in the past. So this might be new ground for you and for all of our listeners can you tell me, you know, where did you grow up? Any childhood stories or mentors that influenced you towards investing, business, or or finance? Okay, well, that's interesting. Yeah, so I always thought I was going to go into business when I was a child. My grandfather had his own business. In fact, after the Second World War, he came out. He founded his own uh, department store, which he hmm. had in Melbourne, but he he had uh, he had an early death. My father then went on to establish his own business, completely different industry. And so, you know, I always thought I was going to go into business. And my father, back in the day, he had a lot of business magazines around he'd sort of um, subscribed to from America, like Business Week, Forbes, Entrepreneur. You don't see some of these magazines around so much anymore, particularly the younger people listening just won't remember what sort of a culture it was of um, of people buying magazines and getting magazines delivered. And so, uh, believe it or not, we actually used to read magazines of an evening uh, as well as watch television. And so that sort of got me interested in all sorts of different aspects of different industries. I went to university. I was doing commerce law. I still didn't know what I wanted to do, but I got into third year and I started doing finance. That led to honours in finance. That led to investments. And the thing that really I, I really got into in investments is that it brought everything together. It brought the accounting together. It brought the, the sort of like the legal framework together. It brought the analysis of a company together from a from a um, spreadsheet point of view, if you like, and all the all the quantitative aspects around that. How do you do a DCF? And then, of course, you have the whole um, psychological aspect uh, of investing when you're talking to management, when you're when you're talking to customers, suppliers, all that sort of stuff. Uh, reading between the lines, what they're saying, uh, trying to understand what they're saying, asking the right questions, let alone the whole trying to understand how a stock should be priced. And then you have to know how other stocks are priced so you can stock, price your stock. So all these things sort of came together and I thought that was going to be an incredibly interesting career uh, to have. And so I was so keen in my final couple of years of university to try and get some work experience in investment management. And, and that's that led me into, into uh, being a professional fund manager. And was it everything that you expected it to be? Yeah, I wasn't expecting the stress to be so high, actually. <laughs> but it's, it's funny. Um, yeah, I became an analyst. And of course, you've got, a, you've got a fairly limited range of companies that you might be covering, 12 or 15. Um, you know, it takes, it takes quite a while to get up to speed. Generally, with, with analysts, in, in fact, 
you know, it, it takes a while before the portfolio managers can um, really tell whether they're any good or not because you've got to see enough calls. You've got to see enough analysis and see enough calls, you know, to know that, you know, it's not just bad luck. It's just bad, you know, if somebody's no good because people can have a run of bad luck. So, you know, there's obviously a lot of stress when you're managing a relatively small number of recommendations. And then when you become a portfolio manager, likewise, you know, depending on the style of investment that you're having to implement, it can be extremely stressful. Uh, when you have to choose between two investing in two companies because they're both, you know, both relatively large in the same sector, but you can only have one, and you know there's not that much between them, and you're actually forced to make a decision, knowing that really one's slightly better than the other, but not that much, and 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 anything could really happen. I suppose experiences like that formed my view over time of the way that I'd prefer to invest, and certainly you know what I found through my career is that. I think different people have aptitudes and suitabilities to different styles of investing or different approaches to thinking about uh, companies or strengths or weaknesses as portfolio managers. And it's been that whole journey that I've been on, which is, is, which is really, I think, you know, um, just been very interesting. I've been, I've been doing this now for over 30 years. What do you think, Simon, what do you think makes a good analyst? Well, you know, there are, there are different things you need at different stages of your career as an analyst and then as a fund manager. And being a good analyst doesn't mean that somebody's going to be a good fund manager either. So, so when somebody starts off as an analyst, you don't really know how they're going to turn out. Obviously, a prerequisite is to be able to, you know, read the accounts, put together a good note, do a model, understand the industry, come up with a conclusion. But do you do that well? It's one thing to do it on paper like you're doing an assignment, but you know, are your expectations met by the company or did they not get met by the company? Like I said, you need a few years before you know, but you do need to bring all those skills together that I was talking about having before to really be able to do that sort of work. Then as you become a fund manager, it's one thing to be able to be a good analyst and know what the earnings of a company are going to be and and uh, how it's going versus its competitors and does it have new products coming out and will they be successful and you know what can you expect from them it's another thing to know how to build a portfolio um, whether it's the right time to invest in that stock uh, whether you're getting in at the right price you know have you got enough patience have you got too little patience so it's really it's really hard to put your finger on as i said it depends on the style of investing some people are wonderful index managers they just they just love just having certainty and doing the numbers and just implementing to the index and they're right on top of it and their attention to detail and their conscientiousness is just fantastic. But, you know, then there are others that, uh, you know, they've got, they've got a greater affinity, say, with being value investors. Mm. And so they want to always see, you know, the cheapest possible price for, for a stock and that biases the way they think about, think about stocks. But it also creates a certain type of portfolio. And if you ask that people like that to be growth investors, they, they have enormous stress. They just don't like it at all, mm. vice versa as well. So really, I, you know, the path that I, I went on was to start off my career at a value investor. Um, in fact, I went through two value investors, Westpac Investment Management and, and, and Rothschild, and they were just fantastic examples of value investors. You know, um, at the time, Westpac won the Fund Manager of the Year in 1989. Rothschild won it a number of times before I, I, I got there and um, it had a fantastic reputation. And then I left uh, just really um, halfway through the tech boom and went to Colonial First State, which was a growth investor, which was a great time to go and 
work with them. And I really learned about investing in companies that had GDP plus rates of earnings growth and what it was like to build a portfolio um, out of them. And, and um, you know, I found that while I could do both styles of investing and I could have quite good results, there were aspects about both of them that I wasn't all that comfortable with. And that eventually led uh, to me setting up my own business with my own style. And, and quite interesting, actually, um, when somebody goes and works for a funds management firm, they, they sign on to the style of that fund manager. I mean, that's the style that the fund manager has sold to their clients. And mm. that's the style that they explain to their researchers and their asset consultants. And they don't have a lot of scope to change that style too much. So it's like anybody going out for their first job. What sort of industry are they going to be in and are they going to specialise? And sometimes that's sort of more, you know, just sort of like the roll of the dice or where the cards fall as to what somebody's career ends up being mm. like. And, and that can also happen in funds management. But in my career, I've had the benefit of being able to see a variety of styles and, and finally, you know, work on one that I think suits me. Mm. So tell us about that. How did you fuse, I guess, the best of both worlds? Yeah, well, um, the thing that really appeals to me, apart from bringing all the skills together in, in investing in stocks, is the aspect of making money from the stock picks. So making money for the clients from the stock picks, you know, making having stock picks that actually make money, not that not a relative outperformance per se, but actually making decent money from them. And, and the thing that really uh, upset me, if you like, about being stuck with a particular style of growth or value was there'd be stages in the cycle where that just wasn't possible. You were right up against it because if you're going through a tech boom and you're a value investor, um, you're going to be left behind. And likewise, if you're a, you know got a growth bias in your portfolio at a time when there's an economic contraction, again, you, you're you're absolutely going to be um, you know underperforming. So I really you know thought about well, what's what's a better way of doing it? What's again using all the skills I've got? What's a better way of doing it? And it really gets back to having an absolute focus rather than a relative focus. And and so by that, I mean, yeah, Woolies might be five or 10% better than Coles. I don't care. What I'm looking for are those companies that go up by 50 or 60 or 80%, the ones where we can do our forecasts on them and say, if the market was to agree with me about what the future revenue and earnings growth of this company is, it would be pricing this company 60% higher today than what its share price is right now. And it's those sort of companies we're looking for. And, you know, how do you find companies like that? Well, typically those companies will be having a step change of some sort going on in their business. And it's really finding those companies. It works, by the way, it works the other way too. If you can find companies that are having a step change downwards in their prospects, they're candidates for shorting. But again, it all comes back to what price should people pay for the stock today if they would agree with my expectations for the future? And, uh, you know, so what is the payoff? If I invest today compared to today's price, what price should it be trading at? What is the payoff that I'm going to get if I do that? How do you go about valuing companies? Because obviously you focus on absolute returns. How do you, how do you value them? It really comes down to discounted cash flow analysis in the end. And it's interesting because, you know, some companies have their growth spurt in the near term. Some have it in the medium term. Some might have a slow build and have a really, you know, big set of earnings five, six, seven years out. And you need a way of bringing that all back to today's price. If you just look at PEs one or two years out, that doesn't cover all the situations. So, you know, that's the wonderful thing about a discounted cash flow. It, you can bring it all the way back uh, and so that you can compare like with like. The problem for most companies is that most companies are fairly priced most of the time. And by that, I mean they're priced within 10 or 15% of what they're worth. And 
you know, the forecasting error, if you like, uh, on most companies is 10% when you're calculating evaluation. So if most companies are uh, priced within 10 or 15% of what they're worth um, and you've got a forecasting error of 10% over time, then it's very difficult to actually, with confidence, say any particular one of those companies is going to outperform another company. You know, you can try and fix that by having enough bets, if you like, so that the the insight comes through um, relative to luck. But what we prefer to do is only look at those companies that are the, the ones that have these big payoffs. And, um, you know, at the end of the year, you can look back and you can see that, you know, maybe maybe 10 or 15% of the market's gone up by 50 or 60%. And on the other side, maybe, you know, 10%'s fallen by 30 or 40%. We're looking for those. So the question is, how do you find those? Or more particularly, how can we have confidence that when we make these forecasts about what's going to happen in the future for these businesses, how can we have confidence that that we're right about their future prospects and the market's being too conservative, either too conservative because the, the, the prospects are much better than they think or too conservative because the prospects are much worse. That's really the interesting thing and, and you know, that's really what um, I've spent a long time thinking about and that was the reason why I thought that we had an edge and it was worthwhile um, starting up Monash Investors. And so how do you find these companies? Because obviously the universe, even though Australia is not that big on a global scale, it still is very, very large to for analysts and portfolio managers to sift through. Can you walk us through kind of if it's a filtering process, like do you use negative screening tools to get rid of companies that aren't in your remit? How do you think about that? Okay, so um, in terms of actually finding these companies, it's not a it's not a screening tool per se. I mean, what we're not doing is looking at the whole market all the time because sixty five to seventy percent of the companies, like I said, are, are just not worth spending a lot of time or resources analysing because analysing companies actually a pretty big deal. There's a lot of work to be done in in doing all the work to analyse a company uh, and being right on top of it. So where we tend to get our, our ideas from are from the announcements that companies make to the stock exchange or news items, things that are going on in society, changes in regulation, new products that come through SARS in the day and now COVID, things that happen, just things that happen cause us to think about what's going on in the world and make us look at, at, at particular companies. So narrowing it down to a, to an individual company, you know, it could be a company that's having a store rollout, for example, and that we know that store rollouts are a recurring business situation that can lead to, you know, really strong growth over many, many years. And often that is misjudged by the market or underestimated by the market. And so, you know, if we see a listed company that's that's going through a store rollout program, that's usually worth investigating because um, if they're getting really quick paybacks on those stores, then almost certainly the management and board of that company is going to want to accelerate that rollout, uh, for example. So, so look, we've got these, these um, if you like, these recurring business situations we look at to uh, trigger us, if you like, and that we can rely on. And so underestimation of significant change is, is such a big one of those. Um, another way, you know, you can get significant change is uh, through geographic expansion. You can get it through a new product. You can get it through technological change, you know, or you can get it through obviously changes in uh, the structure of an industry as well um, that could be beneficial to to a company. Those things can actually work in reverse as well. If you've got a strong competitor or have got new capital coming into the industry, 
Um, you've got changes in regulation that might benefit the company or make it a lot harder for the company. And what we find time and time again is that the market tends to underestimate really big changes. So if you think back at some of the more recent stocks that have had incredibly good share price runs and have come out, seem to have come out of nowhere with a, with a new product, probably the one that everybody thinks of first now would be Afterpay. And, you know, that, you know, the idea of having a lay-by where you actually got to take the product away before you finished paying for it, you know, why would that have worked? Why would anybody have thought that had actually worked? But when you actually see it work in action and then you see the rate of adoption by people um, and you see how once they start using it each year, those individuals use it with more frequency, then, you know, you can actually get some incredibly strong growth in your forecasts but the market just isn't prepared to price that because it just, it just, even though the evidence was there, it just seemed, it just didn't sit well with people, you know. So underestimation of significant change is a big one. It works both ways. A classic that everybody be familiar with also is uh, just the way people have changed their TV viewing habits over the last 15 to 20 years. Uh, it used to be that there was only three or four television stations. There was no pay TV and then pay TV came along. So there was a bit of fragmentation there. There was more competition for content. And then streaming came along. And again, more, more competition for content. And also the advertisers basically fragmenting because they had a lot more choices. And you know, let alone online generally. And then all the advertisers started going on to things like Google and Facebook. So you know, that's an industry, that TV industry, that has seen a massive decline in its earnings and it's played out over a very long period of time. But if you if you had a look at the earnings forecasts of the analysts over the last 15 years, what you would have seen, in, particularly in that 10-year period, uh, the first 10 years, is that they just kept underestimating the degree of, of, of collapse in the revenues. And uh, if anybody just wants to look up a, a stock, look at Sky TV, which is a dual listing in New Zealand and Australia, and you can, you can see how that, how that played out. Mm. It's kind of that bias of analysts to be optimistic, right? You know, we see a lot of the times analysts almost always just go one multiplied by whatever last year's revenue rate plus a little bit of growth. Um, and it kind of just, we extract these values out into the future and that's where we go so wrong. Yeah. Well, and there's conservatism in that. There's basically, if you look at what happened last year and you and you basically say a little bit more like that, that's obviously you know, pretty good for them from a career point of view because they're not sticking their neck out too far. Likewise, they can look at what the other analysts are doing. And if they want to be more bullish than the other analysts, then they can be a little bit more bullish, but they don't need to stick their neck out too far. But, you know, I don't want to be too tough on the analysts because they have all sorts of pressures themselves. They've got different sets of clients. They've got their their um, their own desk. They've got their value clients. They've got their growth clients. They've got their retail clients. And they've got their corporate clients. And they get pulled in different directions. So, so the you know the trick for longevity as a as a sell side analyst, as a broker's analyst, is to be relatively conservative both up and down um, in your forecasts. You certainly need to be right in the very near term, but you know if, if you can always adjust your medium term numbers a little bit more slowly and push them in the direction that you think they should go in. But you can wait and see before you do that. And and so that's what we're exploiting to some extent. When, when there's some really big changes coming in earnings for a company that, that the analysts really aren't prepared to stick their necks out too far either way um, to say what's going on. How about not only just in terms of forecasting upside, but how about in terms of your definition of risk, Simon? I know you know this, but um, many investors use you know, relative measures of risk 
to justify their position sizing or where they go and how they invest. How do you think about risk, generally speaking, and you know absolute return focus? I imagine there's a slight variation in your definition. Yeah, yeah. So we look at risk on an absolute basis, not on a relative basis. And you know what does that mean? It means that when we diversify the portfolio, just because resources are thirty percent of the market, for example doesn't mean that we've got very little risk if we have 30% of our portfolio and resources. Uh, you might have little risk relative to the market, but you've got a lot of risk having that much exposure to, to quite a volatile sector uh, in absolute terms. So what we do is we limit the absolute size of our different exposures to stocks and sectors. And the other thing we do is we think of risk on a stock basis in an absolute sense. And so that means you know the risk of losing money basically. We don't want to lose money if we can. Obviously, stock prices go up and down, so, so the portfolio go up and down. But you know, if we think something bad is going on with a company, then we'll just get out of it, right? There's no, we're not going to, we don't want to just ride it through. And so that's quite different to, say, a, a manager who's looking at, you know, a relative portfolio where he's trying to beat an index and he's got choices within his sector. If the whole sector is going bad, he's still going to own some stocks in the sector. He's going to try and own the better stocks in the sector. We'll just stay away from it completely, or better yet, we'll short it. Mm. How does it, in terms of um, finding ideas for the long versus the short side, do you tend to research those opportunities in tandem? So if you're looking at a a sector, um, like say, like, you know, streaming TV, would you be actively looking for both long and short? And would that like be dependent on quality and valuation and those types of things? Yeah, so look, the um, we're always looking for short as well as long, but the shorts are much harder to find. You know, we're not looking to do a pair trade every time we find a, an opportunity. It's it's really a case of for the longs, we're looking for at least sixty percent upside to our our price target to get excited about them. For the shorts, it's very hard to say that a company is going to fall. in price or 100%, you know, that's the worst it can do. Uh, Whereas a a good company can go up multiple times, a a bad company can only fall 100%. So the hurdle for a short is lower. Um, So we're looking for a 30% downside for a short. And that means that, you know, it makes sense to have a lower exposure to those sort of companies. So we might have a a 5 or a 7% weight in a company that we own, but a company that we want to go short will only put a 2 or a 2.5% weight in. Because obviously there's less payoff to come, so why would you invest so much money? Um, likewise, you've got unlimited upside. If you're wrong, the problem keeps getting worse. You know, the stock price goes up, which means your liability goes up. Whereas in the case of a um, of a company you invest in, if you get it wrong, the stock price goes down and your exposure to that company falls. So so shorts are quite a bit riskier. They're harder to find. Therefore, we have uh, you know, and the payoffs are less. So um, we have fewer of them in the portfolio and they have lower weightings. So we have a long bias, as we say, in our portfolio. And that makes sense as well because, you know, the world economy tends to go up over time. Earnings per share tend to go up over time, uh, particularly we're finding the best companies. And so why wouldn't you want to be in the market Mm. most of Mm. the time? Mm. One of the things that I look at when I was doing some research on you and your investment approach, I was looking at you know, the, the risk standard risk factors like like beta, sharp ratios, any type of, you know, risk return metrics. And I noticed that the beta of the fund is actually very low. And I guess I, I know you have the absolute return focus, I guess. But um, do you deliberately target a specific level of, of beta? Or is it just that's just purely the case because of you've got the cash balance 
um, you might be using derivatives to hedge some exposure or something to that effect? Yeah, it's, um, you know, that's interesting because um, so much of what we do is outcomes, right? So when it comes to finding these stocks, we can only find the opportunities that are there and that we can identify, right? Yeah. So we're not going to find all the opportunities. It's just a subset. And sometimes there are more opportunities to find and sometimes they're easier to find. So, you know, that means that sometimes we've got more stocks in the portfolio, but other times we've got less. And and there's a natural ebb and flow to that in that when stock prices are high, it becomes harder to find stocks that meet our criteria. And so we're tending to exit stocks or sell down in stocks and our cash weight's high. So not only are stocks uh, an outcome, but the cash is an outcome as well. And sometimes the stocks we have are mostly large cap stocks and sometimes they're mostly small cap stocks. Again, it's an outcome. And so is our beta and our volatility in the same way. And so, you know, we're not targeting a low beta per se, but um, on the one hand, we, we, we should have a beta less than one if we've got, you know, 20% cash in the portfolio. But also, if you can find a stock that's a really good stock and it tends to go up, even though the market goes up and down, well, it's going to have a low beta. Yeah, of course. Right? It's just the way it works because the beta is the sensitivity to the market. And so if, the, if, it, if it just tends to want to go in one direction regardless of what the market's doing, then its beta is going to be low. And I think we've benefited from that over time as well. But like we're not targeting a low beta per se. Um, it's comforting to know we've got a low beta. So, you know, if the market's falling, we're less likely to fall as much. Mm. Yeah, I just know that, you know, um, you occasionally see that with some absolute return focused managers. You often see that they do have some sort of explicit target, you know, whether that's just on, you know, for marketing or if it's actually just. Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, absolute returns used in different ways. In its purest sense, absolute return is about always delivering a positive return, right? And, and some fund managers are market neutral. So they've got as many shorts as they've got longs and they're trying to create a return regardless of the market going up and down. But the, the cost of doing that tends to be that it's not much of a return. <laughs> it's, you know, whereas what we're doing is we're, we're long biased and as I said, that makes sense because for the vast majority of the time, markets go go up, but we're focused on absolutes rather than relatives. And so that's what we mean by an absolute focus. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How about, because having read through your monthlies and, and such, how about in terms of the, like in terms of your actual portfolio construction and how many individual positions you tend to have? It would seem to me, I could be mistaken, but it seemed to me that you're quite concentrated on the long side. Is that because, as you say, you're targeting those, you know, you've got a pretty high hurdle rate of 60% undervaluation. Is that simply because the opportunities um, in the Australian market, it just takes time to find those and there aren't that many of them at any one time? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it, it um, reading through our monthlies, each month I've got how many stocks we've got on the long side and how many we've got on the short side and what weights they are in the portfolio. And also sometimes we do these group trades, which might might be a combination of stocks to give us an exposure that we're, we're looking for as well. But it, And the numbers of stocks does vary quite a lot. I think it got down, our long positions got down to a low of 11 a, a couple of months ago, and they'd been as high as 23, right? So so it does move around a lot. And what, what moves that is where is the stock price relative to our target price? How much have we got left in that potential payoff or have we hit our price target? And we're getting out completely. So um, it really does move around quite a lot. And it's not because Australia doesn't have so many stocks per se. It's because, again, 
can we identify the stocks, you know? And like some stocks, it's really hard to identify. At the end of the year, you know, we might find that resources stocks have gone up 80 or 90%. And that's because commodity prices have gone up. But, you know, commodity prices is not something that we have an edge in forecasting, right? It's not something that we really want to, most of the time, back ourselves to beat the market on. I mean, pretty much everybody in the world has the same set of information when it comes to understanding what's going on in a commodity market. So so why would we have a better insight than, you know, three or four million other investors who've got the same set of information we have? Whereas when we look at more normal companies, if you like, in terms of, you know, industrial companies, companies that are providing services and goods and they've got competitors and, you know, they've got different types of products and they've got technology and they've got, you know, um, different sort of, uh, you know, locations that, that, that matter. When we look at those, we've got a lot more to make judgments about where we can use our understanding of business, where we can use our understanding of, uh, you know, we get from meeting people uh, and investigating in a way that, you know, none of, the, none of the information is materially non-public. But when you put it all together and you use the investment approach and style and insights that we've gleaned over, over 30 years, that's where we can add our value as opposed to just, say, backing a gold company because we think the gold price is going to go up. We're just as likely to be wrong about that as we are right. Whereas when we come to that old chestnut about the product rollout story or the store rollout story, we're far more likely to be right about that than to be wrong. How about um, in terms of selling positions? Because if we think about you know getting down to eleven positions and cash balances and so forth, have you? I guess what's your dis- like? What's your discipline? Like, how do you think about selling positions? Is it purely based on value, or is there some other sort of mechanism that comes into place? Because I'm interested to know if you track um, the performance of your positions after holding them? Okay, so short answer to that is no, we don't track the performance of our positions after holding them, um, but we do obviously watch them, but it's, it's not a formal thing in terms of the performance of those stocks per se. So in terms of selling discipline, price is a really big deal, right? Obviously, we invest in a stock because it's got a certain payoff. Yes, our target price will change over time if there's new information, and it will change over time as time rolls on because it, it's got an implicit discount rate as well. So if the discount rate's 8 or 9% and all other things are equal, then in a year's time, the price target will be 8 or 9% higher because you've, that's, that's basically the payment for time, if you like. Um, so we set an absolute weight for a stock based on it having at least 60% payoff. As it goes up, we keep trimming it to keep that weight. And when it starts to have less than a 60% payoff, we start reducing the weight in absolute terms and we're out of the stock when it gets to our price target. So that's the that's the price discipline. But you're right, there's another part of that. There's another discipline that's important and that's more around a qualitative discipline. And, you know, there's always a chance that a, an analyst or a fund manager will get too attached to a stock. You know, we like to see analysts and fund managers that have conviction about their stocks, but what conviction can do is actually make people look through a bit of bad news and say, well, that doesn't matter so much because, you know, in a year or two or three, things are going to be incredibly good for this business. And there I'll just ride out this little bad patch that we're seeing. And that sounds like a sensible thing to do, except what we've found is that if you do that, you can make yourself susceptible to a bit of a death by a thousand cuts. By the time you realise that the basis on which you've made the investment in this stock is not correct, the stock price has already collapsed. So, so what, we, what we've got are some early warning triggers to try and stop that from happening to us as investors. 
and we've got three main early warning triggers. And whenever one of these early warning triggers is hit, we automatically sell a third of the stock position, no questions asked. And if the early warning triggers hit a second time, we exit the stock. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. So we've got, we've got two, uh, as I said, we've got three early warning triggers. So the first early warning trigger is if the stock unexpectedly has a downgrade to its revenue or earnings, right? So that's no questions asked, bang, let's just sell a third. We don't like it. The next early warning trigger is around our own expectations in the near term for the stock, right? So whenever we do a model on a stock and we do our DCF, we also include what we call signposts, you know, and these signposts are time bound. So what are we expecting to happen by uh, September this year? Uh, Maybe we're expecting a number of stores to be done. Maybe we're expecting that when we look at the marketing spend and as a percentage of sales, it will be no higher than 5%, right? So we come up with signposts that are specific to individual stocks that we think are the most important things that we need to see to give us confidence we're on track on those stocks. And as I said, they're time bound. It could be something happening in three months, could be six months, but but they're absolutely um, in our system with a certain date something has to be seen by. If it doesn't happen or it misses for some reason, then again, that's a one-third cut. The final thing is around short interest. So, you know, we're in stocks that we have, a, as I said, you know, we think they're um, no-brainers. We think they should be compelling no matter who looks at them if they're looking at them the way we look at them. But, you know, if somebody wants to take a big short position against the stock we're in and after we've bought in, we see that short position spike, then to us, that's another early warning trigger. Somebody has got a lot of conviction the other way on the stock. It's not compelling to them. And for that reason alone, we'd just sell a third. So they're early warning triggers. And really, that's worked really, really well for us, having those early warning triggers in stocks. It's, it's helped us uh, avoid blow-ups in the portfolio. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's actually been quite interesting because the fear of having these early warning triggers in is, well, it's all very well having the early warning trigger in, but aren't you going to miss out on the really good returns? <laughs> and the way it's turned out is generally no. Generally, you know, the early warning triggers have actually um, saved us. Yeah, right. Okay. That's fascinating. I've never, uh, like, that's a very explicit sell discipline. And I think that's oftentimes the part where most investors, at least private investors, fall down is that sell discipline. So fascinating stuff, Simon. How about this one little question here, and I think you're going to answer this pretty plainly, is although you have absolute return focus and how you think about risk, do you do you let macroeconomic factors influence your positions or you know where you go in terms of industries or sectors, et cetera? That's a really good question. Okay, so we're very much bottom-up stock pickers and we're bottom-up because we price all the stocks. But when you go through that process of working out your DCF, Obviously, macro factors have to come in, right? So what's going on in the economy, you know, particularly in the shorter term, in the medium term, you know, what is happening in a particular industry, what is happening to wages growth, what is happening also just even if it's the way, you know, a downturn is impacting on particular sectors of the economy uh, that might be important when you're actually trying to work out um, the future earnings of a, of a company. So you have to look at it like that. But most of the time, most of the time, we think macros relatively irrelevant, right? And again, it goes to where is our skill set? Our skill set is not in macro. Our skill set is in the, suppose, the minutiae of individual companies and what's going on inside the company, what's happening to their customers, their products, and so forth. But having said that, 
there are times when there are extreme situations, when it's relatively easy to see what the impact is of macro and it's going to be quite strong in one direction or another. Um, in the same way that I'd never say I'd never invest in a gold company because sometimes you'll, you, you, know, you might be in a position to say, well, the gold price is so low, it's at an extreme, there's no way it's going that much lower, it's a good time to invest in a gold company, right? It's just that those situations are relatively rare. Okay. Having said that, we had a really big macro situation recently, and that was COVID, right? And that influenced our portfolio a great deal. And again, it got back to this recurring business situation, this recurring pattern of behavior. So if I can digress, I tell you our story about COVID because that really is a great example of how macro imp impacted on the pricing calculations for individual stocks. So in February last year, the market was starting to fall as more information came out about COVID, but the World Health Organization wasn't saying it was a global pandemic and, and neither was the CDC in the United States. But the share prices were starting to roll over. And we we're in that situation, just like everybody else, pretty much the same information we had that they had. The share prices were falling. Were the share prices incorporating too much? Were they incorporating too little? How were we in any better position than anybody else to assess that? We felt that we weren't. That wasn't our strength. But we kept reading the documents put out daily by the WHO and the Center for Disease Control in the United States. And the CDC's piece was very interesting. Um, they had a page in their assessment every day that was headed, risk to US population is low. And then it had four or five paragraphs explaining what the risk was to the US population um, and why it was low. But towards the end of February, it added an extra sentence uh, to the last paragraph there. And the sentence read, uh, it is likely that COVID-19 will become a global pandemic in which case our risk assessment will change. Right? Now, that was a great example of the sort of language that companies use when they don't want to lie to investors, but they're constrained about what they can say because of due process. Right? So uh, nobody wants to lie. Nobody wants to have somebody turn around, point the finger at them and, 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 told them, and tell them that they did the wrong thing. But, you know, so what does somebody do who um, is constrained by due process? For example, if a company's having a strategic review and the management gets asked, do you need to borrow money? And he knows very well that strategic review is going to lead to that conclusion, but it hasn't been presented to the board yet. He can't turn around and say to the investors, yes, we're going to have to borrow money when he hasn't even put that before the board yet. It'd be completely improper for him to say that. So normally they come up with a form of words which leaves them a little bit of an opening, like, no, we don't have to borrow any money at the moment, <laughs> you know, right? And, and that was a classic. In fact, Maya said that once um, several years ago. So in this case with the CDC, basically the bureaucrats were showing this sort of behaviour as well. And it was very clear that, you know, they actually would have thought that it was a global pandemic. Otherwise, they wouldn't have written that. They just couldn't come out and say that right then. And so, you know, then we had to think through, well, what is the implications of it being a global pandemic? And that led to more border closures. That would lead to impacts on the travel stocks. Uh, so therefore, sell your travel stocks, short your travel stocks, or not just not just flight center and corporate travel, but also Qantas, also uh, casinos, for example, where people congregate and or come in from overseas. As things got worse, it was aged care, it was childcare, and then you had the shutdown. Now, so we benefited from 
really reading between the lines from uh, that CDC. And that was a macro thing, but that led to us making price uh, conclusions for these different stocks. And that led to us taking, you know, transactions. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a perfect example of the interplay, I guess, between you know, that macro economy and a bottom-up approach. As we come to the back end of the conversation, Simon, I'm aware that you guys have been restructuring into a listed trust, if I'm not mistaken. Would the new Monash Investors Trust be the, the first um, absolute return listed trust? Yeah, look, I think it's the first um, long-short Aussie equity yeah, listed right. trust with a market maker. Does that, does that create um, any difficulties for you and complexity on the back end? No, no. It's really just like any other unit trust, but instead of people coming in through applications and withdrawals on a daily basis using a form or through their platform, they can also buy and sell on market. And to the extent that the market maker provides that liquidity, he just acts as, as, the, as the agent of the fund and the fund turns around and issues units or redeems units. So from our point of view as fund managers, it makes, it makes no difference, but it makes a big difference to the investors. Because, you know, there's a real problem with Australian LICs at the moment. The vast majority of them trade at a discount. And so, you know, somebody who's invested in an LIC in good faith, uh, you know, for whatever reason, if they need that money, they might have a, they might need to have the family crisis they need to spend the money on, or they, they, they might need to, to buy a house for somebody, whatever it is. If they can't get their money out at NTA, that's, that's pretty poor. You know, we're, we're in business of, of managing money for people and we're not in the interest of, them losing it for just because they can't get liquidity when they want to um, take their money out. And we tried lots of different ways of solving this problem when we with our LIC. We tried doing on-market buybacks. We tried doing off-market buybacks. We increased the dividend yield. We increased the frequency, that, which we disclosed to the market, the NTA. We increased the communications with the shareholders. None of these things worked. So uh, what we're doing, and this has already worked, is we're converting it to a trust and the trust will have a market maker who will just put the normal sort of spread that you get anyway when you invest in and out in a typical unit trust, 0.3% either way, buy-sell spread. You'll put that typical spread on and um, people can get in and out at NTA and there's no issue with liquidity. You don't have to wait for another buyer. You don't have to wait for another seller to come along and match match you because the market maker's there and the market maker is backed by the fund itself and, and we just turn around and, and do the other side. So it's, it's actually, it solves the problem of liquidity. It solves the problem of discount. It's a great product. It's got, it's got yield and, um, you know, we're, we're distributing at least 6% per annum as a distribution backed yield to, to our investors. And historically, it's done double digit after fees uh, as a per annum return as well. So, you know, we think that it's, it's very attractive because we're doing something that typical investors cannot do for themselves. So it's not just the shorting. It's also the quite sophisticated way we um, do our discounted cash flow analyses and price stocks. And then it's also the speed at which we can change the positions in the portfolio. I mean, we have a turnover of about 150% per annum in our portfolio since we started. And that's not something that you know people would normally have for themselves in, in a disciplined way. But you know, we're able to provide that and, and get pretty decent results for them. Do you think the um, exchange-traded funds... Do you think that's you know? Do you think we're going to see more transitions away from licks into exchange products? Yeah, I do think we will. Um, there's been quite a lot of industry interest in what we're doing. Typically, in the past, 
fund managers have been very reluctant to take an LIC, which is a closed-end fund. There's no risk of losing the funds to manage and turning it into an open-end trust, which can have its funds go up and down as new units are, are redeemed or, or issued. But, you know, it's, it's gotten to such an extent, uh, the discounting that we've seen in, in the LIC space, that um, I think any reputable fund manager that is seeing his clients having to suffer these sort of discounts would, would want to fix the problem. So, uh, as I said, we're seeing quite a lot of industry interest in what we're doing, and I expect that uh, um, we won't be the last to do this sort of conversion. Mm-hmm. Okay, so final question from me, which is one of my favourites, is if you could go back in time and tell a younger you one thing about finance, money or investing, what would it be? <laughs> Apart from telling them when the crash of 87 was going to occur and the bond market <laughs> route in 94 and then the tech boom and then the tech wreck and the GFC and the COVID, apart from apart doing from it back to the future, sort of, because that would be the number one thing on my list, right? The number one, uh, apart from that, what I'd say is save, save and invest. That's what I'd say. Save from day one and invest. It might be hard to see when you're young. And you might be fearful like everybody is that the markets are going to correct soon or, but you put, you know, it's time in the markets that makes the difference. There's no reason why the arrow of improved standard of livings and wealth uh, will not continue to go in the same direction it's gone, you know, for the last 200 years globally. And so um, you've got to be in it. Otherwise, you're going to get left behind. Mm. Great advice. Simon, thanks for taking the time out to join me on the show. That's terrific. Thank you very much. 